Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate, experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. I'm Matt Fuller, the broker of record at Jackson Fuller Real Estate. Almost a year ago, another broker, my dear friend and a fellow David in an industry of Goliaths, Kevin Birmingham, made an offhanded comment he knew I wouldn't be able to let go about a proposition our state trade group promoted in the 1960s. Today's episode wraps up the three-part series that grew out of that conversation. A quick review. In episode 108, my friend and retired real estate broker, Don Saunders, helped us understand the Fair Housing Massacre of the 1963 Rumford Act by 1964 state ballot initiative known as Proposition 14, that was sponsored, written, and supported by my state trade association now known as the California Association of Realtors. The outcome of that November 1964 election truly changed the course of American history in ways that impact us to this day. Episode 109 begins with a powerful statement from the 2021 president of the California Association of Realtors, Dave Walsh. One community activist and four realtors then discussed the progress, setbacks, and impacts of racism in the Bay Area. It's a lively roundtable that tells a more complete story than you've likely heard or told yourself about housing racism in San Francisco. Yes, even here in tree-hugging progressive San Francisco, we have a deep history of housing racism. Which brings us to our final podcast in this series today. Being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. These are the words of poet Amanda Gorman. and They have resonated with me since she graced the steps at our nation's capital and hopefully inspired millions to meet this challenge. When I got the idea for a podcast about racism and real estate, I truly didn't know what I was getting myself into because if I did... I'm really not sure if I would have done it. And I don't think I came to this topic completely naive. I am aware that racism runs deep in America. So discovering the depth and historic extent of organized white supremacy in real estate wasn't surprising. What I'm still honestly grappling with is the other discovery. I discovered what so many people of color have known for generations. Who? has been making the dream of home ownership purposefully difficult, if not impossible. The who, for the most part, is the organized real estate industry, my industry. And discrimination was never an accident. It was generally the intent. My industry at the national level once literally wrote the maps used by banks to overcharge or deny loans to people of color. My industry in California wrote, paid, and promoted until voted into law an amendment adding discrimination into the state constitution. As an industry, we suffer from a debilitating case of white amnesia. My real estate licensing law and continuing education courses trumpet the 1968 Federal Fair Housing Act and the Rumford Fair Housing Law of 1963. They are all silent on the who and how of racial covenants, bank redlining, and legalized discrimination. Let's quickly get honest and tell the entire story. A discussion of redlining without explaining how NAR drew those maps with help from the local and state associations is incomplete. 
any discussion of the Rumford Fair Housing Law of 1963 is unfinished until we also discuss what came next. Prop 14 in 1964, the Watts Riots of 1965, and the end of Pat Brown's governance with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1966. That's too hardism and that's not our problem to solve are the two other white-isms that shut down conversations about racism and real estate. Let me suggest two fair answers any anti-racist can work into a conversation to keep it going. First, yeah, it is hard, really hard, insanely hard to right these historic wrongs because, well, people are still racist if much more genteel about it all. Everyone wants fair housing for all until it involves taxing their wallet or building below-market-rate homes near their neighborhood, or approving higher-density multifamily developments instead of single-family homes. Fair Housing for All is given lip service everywhere and tangible funding and advocacy almost nowhere. As for whose problem this is to solve, before I answer that, let me say I really, 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 really hope you've listened to Episodes 108 and 109 about the origins and effects of real estate's racism on daily life for millions of Americans. Joining me today to talk about the dog whistle of, quote, bad neighborhoods, what we can do in 2021 to make our industry less racist, is an incredibly successful, energetic, and involved realtor. He has a national reputation in the real estate industry for his work to put an end to discrimination in housing, So from St. Louis, Missouri, today's guest is Nate Johnson. Welcome, Nate, and let's get right into the questions. Pushback that I often get from folks is all of this terminology and these words that you let me use to describe or not describe a neighborhood, this is just political correctness run amok. So what would your answer be once again, kind of like this is not political correctness, this is why... I do my business the way I do. Yeah, I I think that, you know, it's easy for people that have not been affected and impacted by any discrimination. It's easy for those folks to say, this is just political correctness, or this is not something that's a real thing. But if you have experienced discrimination, then you know that it's not political correctness. You know that this is a real thing. And the sad part about all of that is that most people that experience discrimination are not even aware that they're experiencing discrimination because we do have a tendency to assume that when someone says the house is not available, the house is not available or the apartment is not for rent anymore, it's not for rent. And only when you have a sort of matched pair along with you are you able to really understand that different people based on their race are treated differently in our country as it relates to housing opportunities? And it's across the board. I mean, there's study after study that shows that if you are African-American, you have to spend 50% more time searching for housing than you do if you are white. And we're talking about rental housing. Uh, that's a study there. And that's due to uh, linguistic profiling. When someone calls and they, quote, sound black, then all of a sudden the apartment is not available. Where if they call and they, quote, sound white, the apartment is available. But again, 
if you assume the best of people and you call and you say, hey, is the apartment available? And they say, no, you just assume the apartment's not available. So it's only when somebody shows you, uh, you know what, we had a white guy call and this was the response that they got. Only then do you really understand that this is really still happening. When we looked at, uh, you may be familiar with the Newsday report out of New York that came out last year out of Long Island. And what that study showed was that if you're African-American, you have a 49% chance. I'm not good at math, but that's half. You got a 49% chance of being shown different neighborhoods for houses that are for sale than your white counterparts. If you are Hispanic, I believe the number was somewhere around 30%. Asian, it was somewhere around 20%. So we're talking 20, 30, and almost 50% chance of being shown homes in different neighborhoods than if you were white, simply because of the color of your skin. And if you're coming from a different market, you don't know that you're not being shown homes in certain neighborhoods because you're trusting the realtor to show you the homes that meet the criteria that you've explained to them. And that's not happening. In this particular study, this is a three-year investigative report that, as I mentioned, came out in 2020. Okay, And when we look at the history of all of that, it's been happening since the Civil Rights Act of 1866. You know, we've been seeing this type of behavior. And in some cases, it's very overt. And in other cases, it's very covert. And in even other cases, it is implicit. You know, you've got the implicit biases that we have coming into play. So sometimes people are doing this and they're not even aware that they're doing it. And that's obviously very disturbing as well. But at the end of the day, the result is that different people based on the color of their skin are not being shown the same properties that they would be qualified to purchase or qualified to lease in the neighborhoods that others are being shown. And that's a problem. And we as a industry and as a community have to do better to correct that and to sort of create opportunities that are equal for everyone here within our country. Yeah, I can't think of a better way to say any of those things. I mean, you just hit it so on the head. So thank you for saying that so very, very well. Now that I've successfully gotten through this uh, first buyer meeting and uh, we're good here, we're out looking at houses. This one always comes up. Is gentrification racism? That's a very tough question because it depends on what's happening and how it's happening, right? I think the gentrification can come in a couple of different shapes and sizes, quite frankly. There is sometimes a natural gentrification that is occurring where people are moving into an area, they're, you know, they're developing in a certain way, they're, things are just happening. Other people are moving. A neighborhood is just getting expensive, more expensive for a variety of reasons. So as a result, folks that are of less economic means are forced to move. And then folks that are of uh, greater economic means are able to move in. And it just so happens that, again, if you just look at our society, the folks that have greater economic means tend to be white, and the folks that have lesser economic means are people of color in our community. So sometimes that happens. But on the flip side of that, sometimes you have concerted efforts to say, hey, we're going to get all of the brown people out of this neighborhood, and we're going to, you know, we're going to do things to sort of really push that agenda to transform this neighborhood into something different. And we've seen that throughout history as well. We could go back to 
the urban clearance, land clearance back in the 1930s that was occurring. You know, urban renewal, as it was called, and, uh, you know, it's been dubbed Negro removal, right? Because what was happening is a lot of the African-Americans that were forced to live, that had no choice but to live in certain communities, were relocated into other areas because the areas that they were forced to live in all of a sudden became like, hmm, that's a good location now. We would like to be in that area. We're going to have to get these black folks out of here so that we can turn this neighborhood around and make it a place that white folks want to live in. And, you know, that would be, you know, an example of the gentrification, I think, that would be very insidious and and done in a purposeful way. So I think that it's to, to sort of summarize, I think it's a complicated question. And I don't think that there's a one size fits all answer to that. And when that does occur, a lot often it is occurring as a result of some of the systemic issues that we have in our society. And those systemic issues, you know, have sort of created the gulf of disenfranchisement among certain groups of people and the sort of the wealth gap, uh, too, which just creates spaces where opportunities just aren't available because they're out of the reach of folks that don't have the financial means to afford them. And often they don't have the financial means to afford it because of the systemic racism and other discriminatory behavior that has occurred throughout the history of our country. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of those interesting, I don't know if it's interesting. It's one of these uh, parts of life where these really, you know, big issues of systemic racism and societal wrongs and historic equity intersect with, I just want to live in a house today, right now. And in San Francisco, we had some horrific examples of urban renewal happen, particularly in our Western edition Fillmore neighborhoods that were essentially bulldozed in the 1960s with the promise of beautiful new housing and I kid you not, this is probably not a surprise. It wasn't built for 30 years. Like they didn't break ground on the, the replacement condos until late eighties, nineties. Right. And what was renewed for anyone 30 years later? Yeah. That's again, the history of our country where often the haves have made promises to the have nots and the have nots aren't in a position to, you know, demand more in many ways. And I think that that's part of the reason why we see so much civil unrest in our communities all over the country is because there's a sense that people aren't being paid attention to. Certain groups, certain classes of people aren't being paid attention to. And the only way that their voice can be heard sometimes is through tragic expressions of violence and destruction, as Dr. Martin Luther King once said. You know, and that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with. Again, that's as relevant today as it was in the 1960s, as it was in the 1860s. Yes. Uh, in doing research for this podcast, one of the pieces of data I came across was that even by 1948 in Los Angeles, 95% of the land already had restrictive racial covenants. You know, like already 5% of the land had been said, this is where we're going to allow you to settle. And then you wonder why civil unrest happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, 1948, we had a, a landmark Supreme Court decision. That was the Shelley versus Kramer decision. I'm here in St. Louis. And that was a case that emanated from St. Louis. 
And, um, you know, what the Supreme Court said is that racially restrictive covenants are not invalid. They said that the court is not going to enforce it, but they may be privately enforced. So uh, in a particular neighborhood, if one chose to say, hey, you know, no black folks, no Jews, no Irish, that's fine. They can do that. But the person who they told you can't live in this neighborhood because you're brown cannot go to the police department or seek a legal remedy as a result of that. Similarly, if a neighborhood, if a neighbor in a neighborhood chose to sell their home to a minority or someone who was listed on that restrictive covenant is not being able to live in that neighborhood, the neighbors wouldn't have any judicial action or um, police action against the neighbor or against the person that moved in who was different because it wouldn't be legally enforceable, but it could be privately enforced. Now, what we know is that that's not how it happened. There was plenty of police action and plenty of, uh, you know, sort of uh, judicial action that was occurring to keep neighborhoods segregated uh, in the way that we still see them today. And we know that the, uh, you know, the federal government was responsible for the creation and the enforcement of these policies that maintain segregation. You know, the FHA loan, which was created as a part of the National Housing Act uh, during the, you know, as part of the New Deal in the 1930s, they had a strict policy that they were not lending for financing in integrated neighborhoods. So when neighborhoods became integrated, FHA was pulled out of those. So you would often see the neighborhoods go all the way in the other direction from the direction that they were in simply because the neighborhood began to get integrated. And that was based on policy that FHA had, not only FHA, but it was certainly sanctioned by the Realtor Association. And, you know, we helped to create the policy as Realtors as well. And I say we, you know, I'm sitting here, I, I know in 2021, as an African-American who, was, who would not have been welcome as a member of our association at the time. But I think that one of the things that's really important is I'm in this. It's a we thing. We all have to fix this problem. We all have to be the solution. And it wouldn't be fair for me to point my finger back at somebody and say, well, this is your problem that you created. I wasn't even a member of the association then, because that's not how we move forward as a society. We have to be in this together because we all want equal housing, or at least the people that I want to associate with want equal housing. So as a result, we all have to be part of that solution. Because if we're not part of the solution, then we're part of the problem, quite frankly. And what we see so often is people are sort of turn their blind eye to that. And, you know, it's easy to say, and I, I mean, I get it. I understand why people do that, because, uh, you know, all interests are self-interests for the most part. And most people will say when asked the question about equal housing, fair housing, they're like, look, man, I just want to buy a house. I just want to raise my family. I want to, you know, feed my kids, send them to good schools, put food on the table. Those are the things that I want to do. I'm not looking to become a, a civil rights icon or a civil rights example or story. I just, you know, I just want to get here, right? Exactly, right? Like, I want to be a good person, but I just want to sell a house at the end of the day, right? Like, I don't want to be a bad person, but why are you setting me up to do all of these other things, right? And um, along those lines of NAR being directly involved with redlining and researching this series, I discovered my state association, the California Association, was completely responsible for writing discrimination into our constitution in 1964. 
which was essentially, it was, I think, struck down by the state in 67. Then we had the federal rulings in 1968. You know, so yes, like I was horrified to discover this is the history of my, my state association. And I can either try and do something about it now or find another career. And, you know, what career in America hasn't been touched by racism in some way? Yep, that's exactly right. Similar here in St. Louis. We certainly have our checkered history as it relates to fair housing inclusion. In addition to being a proud realtor, I'm also a proud realtist, which is being a member of the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, which is the oldest African-American trade association in the country. And it was founded back in 1948 when African-Americans were not allowed to be realtors. So, uh, you know, it's our association here locally. I don't think that we welcomed our first African-American until the you know some point in the, the mid to late 70s and i shouldn't say welcomed because they probably weren't welcomed until the 80s you know quite honestly maybe they were admitted in the 70s but welcomed is a much different thing and having said that i was honored to be able to serve as uh president and I, in fact the, i was the first african-american president of our association in 2011 and i also served as you know the first african-american president of our state association here in missouri of Realtors uh, in 2018, which was the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. I, I tell you, it's we have come a long way. We certainly have, but we've got a long way to go, Matt. That's for sure. We've got a long way to go as it relates to creating equal society, equal housing opportunities for everyone. First of all, let me say thank you for all of that volunteer service. Uh, serving as a, a local and a state association president is no small amount of work. So thank you for doing that. Very much appreciated. It sounds like you're, you're hopeful while you're, you're realistic. Um, but I want to, was, uh, want to circle back to kind of this earlier conversation we were having about when you're being discriminated against, you generally don't even know it. And society has heard of driving while black. Have you ever had people approach your team and be like, I need to take a white person with me to see these houses because otherwise I'm not going to be able to kind of like, you know, touring while black experience. What I'll say about that is, and my team is is very diverse. You know, we've got you know we've got everyone uh, you know as, as members of my group. So it's not a an all black team or an all white team or anything like that. And I'll tell you, I have always made it a point and have always advised everyone that's worked with me to dress professionally because you do have a different experience when you're dressed professionally than when you are. Uh, when you're not. And, you know, I would be, it would be foolish of me to say that if you're white dressed, quote, unprofessionally, you're going to have the same experience as someone who is black dressed unprofessionally. So for me, I, I think that that's all a part of doing business. You know, you know that you're going to be treated differently based on your appearance. And there's parts of that appearance that we can change, which is how we dress. And there's parts of that appearance that we can't change. And that's the color of our skin. And that's what's unfortunate is that sometimes regardless of how we're dressed, uh, we're still being judged by the color of our skin. I'll tell you, my wife and I, we recently bought a new home. It's on a little private street, about eight or 10 homes on that street. My wife was there with our children, you know, just kind of moving over a couple of boxes before the moving truck got there you know, please show up and start asking my wife questions. And she's told them, of course, you know, I'm, you know, we just, my husband and I, we just bought this home. We're moving in. I'm waiting for the moving truck and was asked a couple of questions by the officer. What's your name? What's your date of birth? You know, those sorts of things. And, 
you know, the officer was very nice and polite, but two things struck us about that encounter. The first thing was, if my wife was white, she's not, she's African-American, dark skin. If she was white, would the police have shown up? Would they have been at our, at our house? That's the first question. And then the second question is, once they showed up, if they even showed up, are they asking the same questions of someone or do they just believe, yeah, I just bought this house, we're moving in, and that's the end of the conversation? So those types of microaggressions, if you will, and those uh, sorts of implicit biases that, and uh, explicit in some cases, biases that are exhibited are just the day-to-day reality of people of color in our country. And it is impossible, next to impossible, for people who don't have that experience to understand what that's like and to understand what those realities are. Even myself, you know, I'm a light-skinned African-American. My black experience is different than my wife's black experience because she has darker skin. And my experience is different than my friend's experience who have darker skin as well. You know, all of those things are factors. So for me to, you know, I can't even say that I have the same black experience as everyone. So it's really difficult for anybody else who doesn't have these types of encounters to really understand the toll that it takes and, you know, how deflating it can be, especially when you start to think and, you know, as, as upbeat as I try to be to talk about how we're making progress, we're getting to the next level, we're turning the page, all of this stuff. Every time I do that, you know, it does seem like there are things that sort of knock us back down and sort of remind us that, you know what, it doesn't matter how successful you are, you still are not going to be considered equal in this country. And that's not something that I want to believe is going to occur forever. It's not something that I want for my children, my two daughters who are 11 and 13. So for me, I've I've got to think that there is a better tomorrow ahead for us, but we all just have to work together to make sure that we bring that into fruition. Because if I get down about it and don't believe that there's a brighter tomorrow, then I'll wallow in despair and that's not good for anybody. And I'm not able to uh, have great conversations with people about the things that we need to do to shift the conversation and shift the sort of paradigm that has existed, you know, in our country for the last several hundred years. Yeah, your family's experience. I mean, that's not an experience any of my clients have ever had. And to your point about being able to understand, it feels like it's the same. It's just a different version of, of the same thing, which is if you tend to be an entitled person uh, of privilege, generally white, it's really hard to conceptualize not being included or having something shared with you. And it's also really hard to have this concept of the police showing up when you don't want them to, right? Like the police are there when we like them, but we're not over-policed. We get the welcome from the neighbors and some chocolate or whatever, you know, we don't get asked to, you know, provide our date of birth and full name. And that's a really unfortunate experience. Uh, that's understatement. But what's even more unfortunate from my perspective is it's so hard for people to understand. And, you know, I don't have a solution to that one. Here's a question for you about real estate and neighborhoods and the digital age we live in. Are brokerage websites or any real estate website that has pages for some neighborhoods in a city, like, you know, here, let let me tell you about all of the beautiful things to do in the following neighborhoods. 
but they only include some of the neighborhoods and not all of them. Is that racist? Yes, it is. It is uh, 100% steering. And associations that are, are representing data in that way should be held accountable. Somebody should tell them that that is not appropriate. They need to include information, positive information about all of the areas that are within their sphere of uh, service. And if they're not, then they shouldn't be showcasing any of it. Quite bluntly, that is steering. It should not be taking place at all. I did some research, uh, as you might guess, in the run-up to this podcast, and San Francisco real estate is incredibly expensive. San Francisco brokerages have resources. San Francisco real estate brokerages, I can find two, one of which would be mine, that have every neighborhood featured. Some of the largest don't, you know, the ones with the largest web budget, but um, that's a conversation and call I'll make later. So along the, the lines of digital racism, what if I was to optimize a landing page and pay Google for a search term like find me a home in a desirable San Francisco neighborhood? I don't have a problem with that. You know, I think about St. Louis, for example, and there are certainly desirable neighborhoods here in St. Louis. And what's funny about it is that some of the desirable neighborhoods that come to mind for me are some of the most integrated neighborhoods. So I don't see that uh, in that context as being necessarily that dog whistle where it can be if, uh, you know, again, depending on the context, but just in general, looking for a desirable neighborhood, I would not perceive as being a concern from a fair housing standpoint. No, and I think that's a, it kind of goes back to this earlier example that we had talked about, which is what is your frame of reference, right? What is a, the frame of reference for a good neighborhood and the frame of reference for a desirable neighborhood? And if we're generally going to give people the benefit of the doubt that they, you know, they want a nice yard, they want to send their kids to school, they want to get along with their neighbors, then absolutely. But it can also be something else as we had kind of talked about earlier. So yeah, absolutely. We've talked about kind of a lot of, uh, teachable moments that, realtors can have with clients when we're discussing or, or come across these situations. And my experience is that as realtors, we will almost always generally avoid engaging in them for fear of losing business or offending someone or having our clients think we're accusing them of being racist. You've given kind of some great examples throughout this chat. Do you have some more about how realtors can engage in these moments? Well, I think that asking more questions is the best thing that we can do in those situations. Talking less and listening more in those spaces can be helpful because then we can really get down to what the client or prospect is trying to convey to us. In that way, we're not making assumptions about their intent. You know, I don't know if you've had an opportunity, Matt, to, to check out the um, National Association of Realtors' new sort of interactive gamification, uh, Fairhaven. But Fairhaven is amazing, and I would encourage all realtors to go and check that out because what you're doing is you're walking through these sort of situations. There's a challenge. You're supposed to sell four houses in a certain amount of time, and you're encountering things that the different you know, diverse members of our associations, whether it be realtors or consumers, encounter. So you have to face questions and you know, respond, how are you going to act in this situation? How are you going to act in that situation? And it really helps to educate you on how you might respond in a given situation or how you might not respond or what the implications are 
if you respond this way versus if you respond that way. Uh, so I would encourage everyone. It's it's at no cost, you know. For, it's a part of your dues-paying membership at, uh, in the National Association of Realtors. You're able to take part in that. It takes about an hour, hour and a half to go through, but it's very enlightening, and uh, I think that it's rewarding as well. So f- I would encourage people to check that out. What is the name of this imaginary fabulous city I'm going to visit again? Fairhaven. Fairhaven. And uh, I know that you have served on uh, many NA National Association of Realtors committees and entities. I'm going to guess you might have had something to do with the development of Fairhaven. Oh, boy. You know what? I would never take credit for that. I'll tell you, I um, the National Association of Realtors is blessed with a tremendous amount of talent from people all over the country who are committed to excellence within our association. And that's excellence in a variety of ways and certainly Fair housing and diversity is one of those spaces. So I've certainly had conversations with people in the past, but no, I could not take credit for the development and the idea of that uh, wonderful tool that we have. But I'm certainly proud to be a part of the association in knowing that they have created this and are moving it forward. But not only that, there have been a lot of things that our association has done over the last several years that I have been very proud of. You know, you look at the uh, recent code of ethics change that was adopted, which prohibits realtors from using discriminatory language, whether it has to do with real estate or not. You know, and a lot of that comes from social media and its popularity. But it's great because you're a realtor all the time, all the time you're a realtor. So it's wouldn't really be appropriate for you to, you know, talk about fair housing or commit to fair housing during the day. But then at night think that certain races of people or groups of people are inferior and putting those thoughts and views out publicly on social media. So that's no longer permissible. I mean, it's shocking that it ever has been permissible, but when we know better, we do better. And we have done that. Also at the National Association of Realtors, in the end of 2019, Brian Green, who was a veteran from HUD, was hired to head up the Fair Housing Advocacy Group at the National Association of Realtors to really work to implement more policy at the federal level through Washington, D.C., and he's since been promoted the vice president of advocacy uh, at the National Association of Realtors. So our association has done a lot here recently to at least take some steps towards correcting some of the wrongs that have been done in the past and some of the wrongs that continue to occur within our association. That is, uh, I think, a great example. I mean, we helped draw the districts for redlining, and we have come so far with people that I, I genuinely feel are, are committed to trying to help us repair some of the historical wrongs. And along those lines, in California, when I got my real estate license and when I do continuing education, there's always a part about fair housing, and I learned all about the 1963 California Rumford Fair Housing Act and the 1968 Supreme Court just, you know, rulings about it. But I never learned anything about state and local associations historic involvement. Do you think that going forward, you know, looking at what we teach realtors, you know, doing a more complete accounting of our involvement would be a good thing? Absolutely. I am, you know, blessed to be able to instruct realtors all over the country on fair housing and diversity issues. And you know, one of the things that many people have said is that the uh, fair housing should be mandatory education for license renewal. 
and some associations and some states are, are really pushing for that and are getting that across because of its importance. And one of the things that I'll say is that in my classes, often people will come up and say, wow, I never knew that this was what was taking place because I don't really sugarcoat the fair housing. You know, I talk about the history of it and really work to get everyone an, an understanding of how we got to where we're at right now. And in order to understand where we're at right now, we need to know where we've been. And where we've been goes all the way back to 1865. And we've got to start there. And that's, and you know, and I kind of talk about what has happened, how the associations have been involved in certain ways and have perpetuated some of the discriminatory behavior. And it sort of leads us to where we're at today. And again, as I stated before, today, it's not that we're clear of discriminatory behavior. It still happens. We still have Supreme Court cases that are coming out. You know, I talk about Facebook. You know, we talk about, you know, discrimination in the 21st century. Facebook and uh, Zillow and, and places like that where we've seen examples of discriminatory behavior that has been overlooked at best. And, you know, the HUD has uh, penalized Facebook for their discriminatory advertising, for allowing discriminatory behavior on their site. And this was in 2019. So we're talking about as late as 2019, this was happening on Facebook site. And this was after a couple of years where they were supposed to have fixed that issue and still didn't do it. So that still exists. You know, we're still dealing with that. It just, it's wearing different clothes today in, in many ways than what it wore in 1965. Yeah. Don't even get me started on Facebook. No favors to most of our society at any level, especially real estate. You mentioned Facebook. It makes me think of access and Facebook and private groups. And then you mentioned being a member of Realtist. And, you know, while a lot of this is, has been focused on the consumer side, a lot of real estate is knowing about houses that are for sale and knowing for about houses for sale is about knowing other people. And as a black person, you have been historically excluded from knowing those people and being welcome into those groups. And Facebook in 2021 is that. Do you feel private listing clubs, I'm not going to name any, are another example uh, that people should really be thoughtful or careful about for the same reasons? Sure, without question. It's a challenge because you get it. When someone is selling their, in St. Louis, for example, their multi-million dollar property, I know that's probably not a big deal in San Francisco, Matt, but here that's not a lot of the market. So when that's happening... I understand that that home seller may not want everyone to know that their home is for sale or know what's going on. And they may trust the realtor to keep it quiet and find someone to purchase the home. So I get it from the consumer standpoint on that. But, you know, when you look at the impact that that has, if I were in the market for that property, and that was my budget, I may not ever see it. I may not have ever known that it was available because it wasn't technically publicly available. And because I didn't know the right people to talk to, I'm going to be uh, excluded from access to that exclusive neighborhood or you know that type of property because I am not a member of those groups or my realtor is not a member of those groups, right? So that's a challenge. But again, it's tough to navigate because I can see both sides of it. 
Now, I don't see both sides of it if we talk about the consumer who says, I don't want brown folks to live here, or I want the right type of people to live here, versus I just want to be private and I don't want everybody knowing that I'm selling my home. You know, there's a difference between those two sentiments, right? Yeah. And I also think that one of the frustrating points that that people don't get is that, you know, you can solve the problems, privacy issue without resorting to private clubs. I mean, we can list a house without putting a sign in front. We can put a picture of the exterior, but not bedrooms. You can use common areas, but not private living spaces. We tend to have, in my experience, you know, this over exuberance of marketing, like, you know, one photo is good. So 6,000 is better. And maybe 6,000 isn't better. So I've asked you kind of a lot of questions from my perspective and my thoughts, my life experiences. Are there questions I should be answering you or some things that you feel it's really important for listeners, consumers, other realtors to know that I haven't asked? Well, Matt, I think you did a great job of, you know, sort of covering the sort of uh, taking an overview of some of these challenges that exist. It's a much deeper conversation. And it's not something that really ends. You know, it's a moving target. That's for sure. I've been working uh, on fair housing and diversity for probably 15 of my 21 years as a realtor. And I still learn something new all the time. Anytime I'm looking for it, I find something new that I'm learning. So it's a constant commitment to education if it's something that you're passionate about. But if it's something that you're just taking a casual look at, then what I would encourage people to do is really just try to think about the experiences of others. You know, when you're looking at interacting with people, be intentional about those connections that you're making. Because we so often interact with people that look like us uh, just through inertia. We have to be intentional about reaching outside of our own networks to interact with people that may be a little bit different than us. And I think that that's important because once we've done that, then it helps sort of change our mindset and we really get an appreciation to understand that you know what, hey, at the end of the day, you know, diversity is the one thing we all have in common. So let's embrace that. I love that statement. That is such a beautiful statement that diversity is the one thing we we have in common. So yes, thank you for that. I really appreciate it. If there's a consumer out there, you know, they're in the market for a a listing agent or a buyer's agent and working with a a realtor who's truly committed to anti-racism work and not just kind of performative marketing, What are some signs that a realtor is sincere and well-educated and going to do right by them in this area? Well, I would say that we often talk about the Equal Housing Opportunity logo, sometimes can demonstrate a commitment to fair housing. I think that you look at the marketing that the realtor has, does it showcase the diversity that exists within a community? And we're talking about diversity from a, uh, you know, maybe a racial standpoint, from a familial standpoint, from a age, a socioeconomic, all of those things. You know, I'll use myself as an example. If you look at the cover of, you know, the, my buyer consultation package or my listing consultation package, it's showing a lot of people. It's showing older people, younger people, people of all different colors, people with different abilities, you know, because I wanted demonstrate my commitment to diversity, all types of diversity, and help people understand that we welcome everyone. We want to work with everyone, no matter what you look like or no matter who you love. You know, we want to work with you and uh, you've got a home here with us. And I think that that's what people should be looking for in realtors that they work with to say, hey, you know what? 
this person is demonstrating that commitment and that's who I want to work with. That's who I want to represent me in selling my home or, or buying a home. I think those are some great tips and uh, kind of really appreciate those thoughts. You know, as, as I've dug into it over the years, you know, it's easy to give yourself this attitude of, oh gosh, this is really complicated. There's all these laws and I'm going to get myself in trouble and how will I ever understand all of this? I don't want to say for the most part. I mean, I think almost overwhelmingly it comes down to it's the golden rule. Are you treating people the way you would like to be treated? And if you're doing that, you're generally close to doing the right thing. Yep, absolutely. For sure. And I don't know um, in Missouri what forms you have to sign when you make an offer. Here in California, we've added a new one, which is the fair housing disclosure form. And back to your earlier point, if you're sitting at a table, like writing an offer for a, a purchase or a sale, then you likely haven't been discriminated against completely. And, you know, you're at least there. And it's so frustrating when people mistake forms like that for actual progress. Right. Yeah. We're not going to form our way out of discrimination. That's for sure. Uh, there's not a form for that. Just sign here. Discrimination will be eliminated. <laughs> Nate, you have been an awesome and amazing guest with some phenomenal insights. And I really enjoyed speaking with you. Anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? No, this has been great, Matt. I, again, I just want to thank you and um, your listeners for taking time to hear a bit of my story and, uh, you know, and some thoughts that I have on how we can work to sort of, you know, create a more inclusive society. And I hope that people have taken maybe maybe there's a nugget there that somebody can grab onto and say, you know what, I like what that guy said about this. You know, I'm going to be more purposeful in that way, because at the end of the day, it really is up to all of us together collectively and individually to make a positive impact, to reach out to someone that may be a little different than us and work to understand their plight, their advantages, their disadvantages, all of those things. You know, it's important that, you know, some of us use privilege effectively. Some of us, if we are in the in group, in whatever group that is, we need to be the ones that are speaking out to others that are in that in group who are saying things disparaging about those that are in the out group, right? That's how we can use privilege effectively to make sure that those things don't go unchecked because silence is often viewed as acceptance. And quite frankly, it really is. So we can't be silent about these things any longer. We really just have to work to make sure that our voice is heard and that we're demonstrating that commitment to fair housing and diversity, uh, because only then are we going to realize the society that we're capable of. Very well said. And uh, you mentioned there reaching out to folks. When folks want to reach out to you, either because they want to work with you in the St. Louis area or for whatever other reason, you have a phenomenal website, which is livingstl.com, correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. As in living St. Louis people. <laughs> Indeed. Nate, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been awesome and uh, wish you all the best success uh, for 2021 in the coming years. You as well, Matt. Stay safe and healthy out there. Thank you so much. At the end of episode 108, I asked the board of directors for the California Association of Realtors to formally acknowledge and apologize for Prop 14 in 1964. I appreciate and value what the 2021 president, Dave Walsh, had to say in episode 109. And I want more. I hope a formal apology from the board of directors will be forthcoming. People of color have historically been denied access to lending and capital for down payments. We cannot travel back in time, 
not to 1619 or 1776, not to the Civil War, Reconstruction, or separate but equal, or even to 1963 or 1964. We, as a society, did bad things. I didn't personally do these bad things, and you most likely probably didn't either. But our parents and grandparents and great-great-greats sure did. So, well, we as a society are now responsible for the repair job. We, as a city of San Francisco, we, as the citizens of the great state of California, and we, the citizens of this imperfect national union called America, are capable of designating money to fund down payment assistance and home loans for minorities. These programs should have interest rates that are so close to zero and be so easily available that they speak for themselves and say, we're sorry, we could have done better. Let's get you on the road to generational wealth development. I believe that's a better apology than any podcast or written letter could ever accomplish. And finally, this series wouldn't exist without all the amazing individuals that helped make it a reality. Thank you to Coop, my digital experience leader. He made me rewrite and rethink this series a lot. And it's worth listening to because of his suggestions. Thank you to the leadership of the California Association of Realtors, especially 2021 President Dave Walsh and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at the California Association of Realtors, Farrah Wilder. Finally, thank you to all of my guests. Don Saunders, the first Black president of the San Francisco Association of Realtors. Kevin Birmingham, founder of Park North Real Estate, who made me aware of Prop 14's existence to begin with. Dina Aslanian-Williams, realtor at Compass Real Estate and a director for the California Association of Realtors for finally giving me the fuller story about Willie Mays and Forest Hill. Tia Honeycutt, realtor at Coldwell Banker, past president of the Oakland Association of Realtors, current director for the California Association of Realtors, and member of the CAR 2021 leadership team, also a mom to three and still an active realtor. Alan Okamoto, broker at Okamoto Real Estate, also a past president of the San Francisco Association of Realtors and a founding member of the Asian American Real Estate Association of America, just to mention two of his many incredible accomplishments. Alan, you're a personal inspiration, and I always come away from our conversations a little smarter. Dr. Veronica Honeycutt, community activist. You've witnessed and experienced so much. Thanks for giving the world Tia, and thanks for taking the time out of your incredibly full days to share just a sliver of what you have borne witness to. Nate Johnson, realtor at Red Key Realty in St. Louis. The magic software that records our podcasts failed with Nate. I'm generally a pretty together guy and podcast host, Nate, so I apologize. And on top of all of that, thank you, Nate, for your decades of advocacy for fair housing and then for finally stopping by to chat for just a few minutes about them. Thank you. And thank you, the listener, for listening. It wasn't an easy subject to talk about, let alone listen to, but I think we can all do better by not being silent about it anymore. Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate, experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. 
podcast notes with links available at jacksonfollow.com slash podcast.